I'm Marie Stone, and this is Writers on Writing. So I used to read novels set in other countries, usually during other times, with this sort of naive detachment. Like they were fascinating but unrelatable. And I always felt lucky to be born in what I thought of at the time as post-history into a country mostly insulated from conflict. But obviously times have changed. And I read V.V. Ganeshanathan's Brotherless Night through a much different lens than I might have done maybe five or ten years ago. It takes place during Sri Lanka's civil war in the 1980s, and it is riveting. Today we talk about it, along with writing in the first and second person, writing in foreign settings, setting trauma in fiction, conveying history and foreign affairs in narrative without being didactic, and so much more. Vivi Ganeshanathan, who goes by Sugi, is also the author of Love Marriage, which was longlisted for the Women's Prize and named one of the best books of the year by the Washington Post. She has served as a visiting faculty at the University of Michigan and the Iowa Writers Workshop and now teaches at the MFA program at the University of Minnesota. She also co-hosts the fiction nonfiction podcast on LitHub with one of my past guests, Whitney Terrell, which is about the intersection of literature and the news. Her work has appeared in Granta, The New York Times, and The Best American Non-Required Reading, among other publications. Brotherless Night is published by Random House. It's out and available, and it's the subject of our chat this morning. Before I bring her on, it's your weekly friendly reminder to visit our Patreon page. After over two decades and 1,000 episodes, and after leaving the radio station, we started the page to get more hands-on and direct contact with our listeners. Hopefully the show has boosted your writing in some way and given you some useful advice. If so, look for us there. You'll get a few perks for your membership. You can see all the benefits by visiting www.patreon.com slash writers on writing. Any level of support helps us out and we appreciate it all. On with the show. Suki, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's a delight to be here, especially on this show that I've appreciated so much in that. Um, I don't think I I don't think I've actually heard the Whitney Terrell episode. So I'll have to go back and listen to that one. I think there's two of them. So yeah, oh, really dig, dig back in the archives. I think he's come on twice with me. So yeah, that's yeah. very cool. He's great. Um, yeah, one of my uh, favorite people to talk craft with. So Right. Me too. So I wonder if we could start before the books by kind of going back to your own relationship with Sri Lanka and its civil war. I know you were born here, but your parents immigrated. And I think several of your cousins may have immigrated here during the war. And I was just wondering if you could introduce us to, you know, kind of your own experience of Sri Lanka and the war. And and we can kind of start there. Sure. So I grew up on the East Coast, primarily outside the Washington, D.C. area. Um, which does have a pretty sizable Sri Lankan community. So some of my knowledge of culture and history and language certainly comes from that context, which was partially a religious context. I grew up going to a particular Hindu temple was being built when I was a kid. And so there was kind of a a stopgap religious space that I would go to once a week with my, usually with my mom. So I knew people in that space. And then, of course, kind of the family context. My parents, yes, immigrated. I had many cousins who went abroad during the war. And I suppose, I mean, I I guess I've never really totted it up. Some aunts and uncles and folks as well. And I think, you know, as with any major life choice, I'm sure 
haven't talked to all of them about why they did that or I think, but I think the war is kind of understood to be a major driver of why people and particularly Thummel people who are an ethnic minority in Sri Lanka would leave. And of course, not everyone wanted to and not everyone had the means to and people came in different ways and um, people came to study or with jobs and some people came as refugees seeking asylum and went to all sorts of different countries. So I think one result of this is that I have family and Sri Lankan friends kind of all over the world in a way that makes for interesting travel. You know, anywhere I go, I kind of look for the Sri Lankan neighborhood in whatever city I'm going to first if it exists. So I have like a very, very diasporic knowledge of Sri Lanka in terms of kind of inheritance. And then for the book, I just did a massive amount of research. As I think I, as I got older, it became clear to me that there's a lot that you can't just, if you're getting stuff from just the people you know, then you may not be getting everything. Or even if you're just getting everything in English or getting everything in America, you're missing things that are coming out of maybe the university library or a translated newspaper or something that someone you might have to seek out might tell you. So that was a really interesting process. But yeah, my my kind of early relationship with Sri Lanka was through my family and through kind of hearing about the early part of the war, which is the part that's in this book. And one of the early events in here, which is a set of riots from July 1983 called Black July, which were anti-Thamal pogroms in primarily in the capital, in which were, I guess, mobs, largely, I mean, state-aligned mobs, which in some cases had voter registration information, which had ethnicity. And so they were able to kind of target Thummel homes and Thummel businesses. And just an unknown number of people were killed in that incident. And it lasted several days. And so that kind of was the immediate event that catalyzed a lot of immigration, but there had been a lot of tension building up before that. So I'd heard about Black July is a particularly interesting example because I feel like that was something that I heard about in a family context. And then later I kind of went and had to do a lot of homework about it. Did you travel to Sri Lanka as a kid or as an adult? I mean, it might have been dangerous when you were a kid, but if you traveled um, there as an adult. If I have traveled there more as an adult. When I was a child, we didn't really go. Certainly other people were traveling there. Other people were obviously living there. And um, I don't know that I can say that what the level of danger there necessarily was. Um, certainly some of the things in the book were going on. And I know people who were displaced during that period. And Jaffna, the setting of the book, the city in northern Sri Lanka, that's the setting of the book, was very militarized. But as an adult, I have gone. And the thing is that I now know as an adult is that it's pretty expensive so if you are a family of four and you want your kid to see the place where you grew up, you are going to have to shell out. Right. And I can understand why there, I think there were families that did decide that they wanted to do that every year. And there, obviously, I think people who couldn't afford to didn't want to. And so for whatever reasons, we did not go. I think as a kid, I, I went in 1982, right the year okay. before the riots, and I would have been two years old. Well, and okay, so so you had the first book, Love the Marriage. And I know second novels just inherently from talking to writers are tricky, especially on the heels of a very successful first novel. And I don't know if you experienced any of that in Brotherless Night, but I was kind of wondering, writing in the aftermath of that first novel, obviously, you felt like you weren't done with Sri Lanka and there was there was much more to do. So tell me a little bit about that experience as we set this novel up of Love Marriage Finishes and then there's something about it and it sounds like it might have been this Black July inciting event. But tell me a little bit about the kernel of Brotherless Night 
when it kind of occurred to you, if it occurred to you during the writing of, of the first novel or kind of how that all came about to launch you into the second one? Sure. So I started Love Marriage or some version of Love Marriage when I was early in college. And I actually started Brotherless Night, which had a different title at that point, halfway through my MFA program. And so I actually had both of them going at the same time and was always really interested in both projects, but especially, I think, in earlier years, just sort of had a better handle on how to finish Love Marriage. And Brotherless Night had in it a lot of questions and it required a lot of skills that I didn't, I think, yet have. And so I kept kind of running at it and banging my head on a door a little bit because I was trying to write about things that I think I just didn't know how to write about in some cases because of skill, like things like I hadn't written a ton in a hyper-realistic way or a realistic way about historical events. And yeah, I think there were there were just a lot of things that I needed to think about how I wanted to approach them. What was it that I thought about voice and setting? And so I finished Love Marriage first in the spring of 2007, and it came out in the spring of 2008. But I've been working on Brotherless Night since 2004. So hmm. I guess about hmm. 19 years ago. And it came out of a little piece of research that I found while I was doing research for Love Marriage, and it became clear that that research wasn't going to fit into Love Marriage, but I was also kind of obsessed with it. So that became the little nugget that started the book. And then I was in a novella class in grad school, but I hadn't actually registered for the class, and it was that spring, spring of 2004. And I decided that I wanted to be in the class. All my friends were in the class. I didn't know how to write a novella. Um, <laughs> I didn't really know how to write anything. And so my way of getting in the class was to approach the professor and volunteer to go first to submit my material first, which is such a bad call. And he said, yes, because who wants to go first in novella <laughs> workshop? No one wants to go first in novella workshop. And so I did not write a novella, but I did write a 30-page short story, which I cranked out in about a week. And actually, some of it is in the book. And so that was the first bit. And the, the that set of writers who were in that class were just really encouraging. And that professor, um, who was Ethan Kanan, was really encouraging. And so that was that was kind of how it how it got started. And then I was like, oh, I think this is this is supposed to be longer, maybe even longer than a novella. OK, so you have to tell me the little kernel of research that sparked your interest. Are we allowed to talk about that or is that too much of a giveaway yeah, sure. for the book? There is a hunger strike, I guess mm. I'll say in the book. And it lives adjacent to a hunger strike that did occur around the same time period. And it was like a bit of political theater. It just kind of stretched the imagination in, in fascinating ways. And I had heard about the historical figure who had gone on this hunger strike. And then as I began to ask questions about him, I heard different takes on who he was and who he had been. And there was also a lot that didn't exist in that space. And so it became possible to imagine the kind of person who might have gone on such a hunger strike and the different reasons that other people might have wanted him to do it and the different ways that they might have interpreted what happened to him at the end of it. So there, mm. now I'm avoiding mm. the spoiler. Yeah, so we should say the book is told first person, mostly, and there, there's sort of an addressing of the reader, and I, I want to get into that because I think that was such an interesting and great choice and one that I, I rarely come across. But it's told over the course of it's looking back. So we are understanding that our narrator is alive in 2009 and talking about events that happened in the 1980s. And so it, it's it's a really nice, for new writers out there, it's a very nice linear chronological 
structure in that regard. Tell, so tell me a little bit about finding Sashi, your narrator, how you knew that it was going to be her point of view that you told it from and, you know, a little bit on settling on on this first person point of view because first person is tricky. I think it's it's hard to stay in somebody's head for that long. So tell me a little bit about finding her. That's interesting. I feel like first person for me is always easiest. Is it? Well, I but I, I think you're right that that's not common. So she, I think in the way that, you know, one subconscious operates during composition, the first page of the book made itself. And then I was like, oh, well, this person seems very bossy. I can just listen to her. I didn't want to tell it from the point of view of someone whose historical fate was too certain to me. Mm, mm -hmm. And I knew that I wanted the novel to be about women and about civilians who live in proximity to militarization. And so it was always in the first person. I think I might have had a. I wonder if during my MFA years, if I had a minute when I switched it to third and it didn't work, I probably tested the waters for like a couple of pages and kind of thought, nah, because yeah. it was such a decisive and an authoritative voice which was just luck. I mean, I wish I knew how that happened. I mean, I hope I can ever make it happen again because <laughs> she just was very clear. And that was just a stroke of good luck. But the second person, which also presents itself on the very first page, that also was kind of always there. And I was interested in it. And then when I showed it to other people, they were interested in it. And it was easy to have it recur and turn and ask different questions and ask itself questions. Yeah, I mean, you so rarely read and, you know, it's not the second person isn't pervasive, but it appears now and then where you kind of break the fourth wall with the reader. And it's so nice because there are all these embedded, as you say, ethical questions in the book, and it allows you to ask the reader the same thing. And like I said, in the introduction, I read this book different now than I think I would have read it 10 years ago. I mean, you can't go back in time and tell yourself, hey, you're going to read something. But I'm asking myself different questions these days than I'm certain I asked myself 10 years ago. And so for the for the writer to be doing that, too, I thought was a really fun and interesting interaction. So that that was a neat way to do that. This might make sense for the time to read. There's a short prologue at the beginning of this, and it kind of sets up that first person, second person point of view. And I wonder if we could, do you mind reading that now? And then we can use that to talk about a few other craft things. Sure. All right. So this is from the prologue to Brotherless Night, and it has a dateline, New York, 2009. I recently sent a letter to a terrorist I used to know. He lives near me, here in New York City, and when I opened the envelope and slid in the note that said, I would like to come and see you, I thought of how much he had always required of me and how little I had ever asked of him. Even when I was growing up in Sri Lanka, before I had ever heard the word terrorist, I knew that if a certain kind of person wanted something done, I should comply without asking too many questions. I met a lot of these sorts of people when I was younger because I used to be what you would call a terrorist myself. We were civilians first. You must understand that word, terrorist, is too simple for the history we have lived. Too simple for me. Too simple even for this man. How could one word be enough? But I'm going to say it anyway, because it is the language you know, and it will help you to understand who we were, what we were called, and who we have truly become. We begin with this word, but I promise that you will come to see that it cannot contain everything that has happened. Someday the story will begin with the word civilian, 
the word home. And while I am no longer the version of myself who met with terrorists every day, I also want you to understand that when I was that woman, when two terrorists encountered each other in my world, what they said first was simply hello, like any two people you might know or love. So it starts with a dateline, as all of the chapters in here do, which I think is a lovely way to orient the reader. There's always this discussion of sometimes it's artificial. How do I you know, set the reader up to know where we are and when we are? And so I think just doing that dateline at the beginning of each chapter, like, why not? So many writers do this artificially to, to you know, make you understand. But, but that was great because there is a lot of movement, not a ton of movement in time and place, but enough that, that it was nice to have those. And then just this word terrorist is so charged. And I think the job of prologues is to set up all of the issues of the book, you know, so that when you go back to finish the book and then come back to the very beginning, you have such a different understanding and knowledge of the prologue sort of being a signpost of where you're going to go. We have a lot of discussions about prologues on the show and good idea, bad idea, what, what their purpose is. Tell me a little bit about choosing to do a prologue. Is that the thing that you said wrote itself to give you the voice and kind of tenor of this character? Yes, that particular page was, I'm trying to remember if it was in that novella that I turned into Ethan. I don't actually know that it was, but it emerged, I think, very shortly after that. And it became clear that that it was sort of the first moment that that voice was on the page. So it was, it has basically always been the first page of the novel. And yeah, that word terrorist, I think someone said to me, I read from this before it was published somewhere, and someone sort of said to me, that's a very post 9-11 thing. And I kind of thought, that's true. You know, if I, I had written it in 2004, and so it was a very post 9-11 thing, and, and also sort of among Sri Lankans, and particularly, I think, among Tamil Sri Lankans, we were used to the language of terrorism being lobbed in the general direction of our community long before 9-11. So like I grew up with a strong sense of my opinions about that word before 9-11 in the 1980s as someone who was critical of the Sri Lankan state and had a lot of thoughts about state terror. And that I think is kind of the double-edged sort of that, right? I think I didn't, I didn't want to be a person who lobbed around the word terrorism without also talking about state terror. And by the same token, I didn't want to let people kind of off the hook for atrocities they were committing if they were non-state actors. So as you can maybe tell from some of the terms that I'm kicking around, like I spent some time kind of studying human rights documentation and thinking about, right, there were periods of time when, I'm trying to remember the specific human rights organizations that did this, but like a lot of human rights organizations spent their early periods criticizing primarily states and they didn't criticize non-state actors. Mm. And I think Sri Lanka was one of the contexts in which that shifted because the Tigers the Tamil Tigers who are in the book and who were fighting for a separate state for the ethnic Tamil minority in Sri Lanka. And they claim to be the sole representatives of the ethnic Tamil minority in Sri Lanka, right? They committed a number of atrocities and they were among the non-state actors who need, I think, you know, obviously deserved critique. And so that was sort of, I, Sri Lanka was one of the contexts in which that shifted. So I was kind of interested in messing with that language and thinking about like who gets asked to explain themselves, who gets asked to narrate. If you are narrating, what expectations do you go to your audience with? When might those be wrong? I don't know, Marie, if you ever read a headline and it says, you've never seen anything like this, but guess what? Colon, something exciting. <laughs> and then, right. 
you know, and to you, you know, I think, and and maybe you actually have seen something like that before. And you're like, that that headline is not for me. That headline does not know that I exist. And sometimes as an audience member, or even as a reader of headlines, I've had that experience where it's kind of like, you've never, you'll never guess what's coming. And I'm like, no, I actually saw that one coming. <laughs> or... <laughs> right. So I was interested in the moments when presumption of audience, who the narrator presumes to be the audience is wrong. And then I also was interested in the audience itself, the moments when the audience is wrong or assuming things and how those two ends might hold each other more accountable. Right. Well, I mean, as I mentioned at the beginning, I used, you know, I, I was just such a naive reader 10, 15 years ago. I mean, I'm, I'm sure I'm still a naive reader in many ways, but the lens through which I think a lot of Americans read things now is a very different lens than we did before. And so playing around with these ideas of terrorism, state-sponsored terrorism, civilian enacted terrorism, I think is sort of a new concept. I mean, it sounds stupid, but I think it's sort of a new concept for a lot of people. So this was a nice way to sort of gently, I think, introduce Americans to something they should have been introduced to a long time ago, if that makes sense. And I think that's what the second person did for me in this was, yeah, sort of an accountability and sort of a way to talk gently about Americans' naivete. I'm not presuming that America's your only audience here, but it's certainly one of the bigger, bigger ones. And I don't know if, did you feel like current events, worldly events, not just American events, sort of informed the way, because you were writing this novel over such a long period of time, and I'm wondering if current situations informed or changed the way you thought about these historical things happening in the 1980s in Sri Lanka. Like, was there some sort of shifting under your writerly feet about what was going on in the world? Or do you think that history is history and fairly set in stone and, and the novel was going to be the novel regardless? Does that make sense? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that, right, I started writing the novel in 2004. The Sri Lankan Civil War ended in 2009. Mm, right. And yeah. I finished my first novel without realizing that that war would end. And I started this novel without realizing that that war would end. And then when it did, that obviously changed how I thought about the book. It changed really how I thought about everything. And then that sort of continued afterwards because as I kind of continued to study post-war Sri Lanka and to learn more about what had happened during the war, you could see kind of the ways that people, the the kind of long after effects of the war were present and were going to be present for a long time, whether that was trauma of some kind, the economic situation, the availability of certain kinds of care, like psychosocial care, et cetera. And so, and then there were other things like the Easter attacks in Sri Lanka happened. And I remember just sort of I needed a minute to kind of think about, right, there are, of course, suicide bombings, like, maybe it's an of course to me, but um, the Thummel Tigers were among the groups in the world that, I mean, they're really, people use the verb pioneered, which I don't really like for this, but that is the verb people, that they were one of the groups notorious for using suicide bombings, probably the first or one of the first groups to use suicide bombings, and there are suicide bombings in the book, and the Easter attacks involved bombings in Sri Lanka um, at popular tourist locations and churches. And that was an enormously upsetting event. And after that, I kind of, yeah, needed needed a little bit of time to kind of think about why were the ones that I had in the book in the book? Where in the book were they? And just what did they mean in relation to this event that had happened so much later? 
uh, and in, in a different political context, actually. So that was an example of a time when I kind of like had to look around and take stock a little bit. And in the end, I mean, there remain, I, you can't write about the Sri Lankan civil war. I think at least from my point, like I could not write about the Sri Lankan civil war without writing about that kind of violence. And so it is in the book. Some of it did end up getting shifted around. You referred to that very linear structure, which wasn't always there. So that was kind of a moment of reckoning. And then I yeah. think, of course, like, yeah, again, like, yeah, the war, the war ending. And there's all, been all sorts of political people in Sri Lanka since then. So I always kind of have my eye on that. So to, in terms of structure and and you saying that the book wasn't always quite so chronological, tell me a little bit about that. Did you do you have kind of in your office a timeline of real events in, you know, research, journalistic events, and then a timeline of the story kind of running underneath it of what's going to happen where? Or was this really kind of by the seat of your pants writing and hoping everything lined up? I think some combination. I don't have a timeline that is on my wall. And I have one in a Word document. And then so I would kind of catch myself in inconsistencies. It took me a while to realize I was going to need that, which you would think I would have caught on to earlier. But yeah, at some point I was like, I have to I have to make a timeline. And, you know, people who had lived in Sri Lanka during that period helped me. And then there were also a lot of kind of historical and academic volumes that have timelines in them. So I referenced those really heavily. Um, there was an Indian journalist who wrote two books about the tigers, and I used and referenced his work extensively. And then also there's a group in the book that writes human rights reports. And there was a group in real life during that time period that wrote human rights reports about atrocities committed by Sri Lankan security forces, Tamil militant groups like the Tigers and Indian peacekeepers. And that group's actual documentation, including all of its datelines and timelines and everything, were hugely valuable to me in keeping track. And then I had people who had lived through that time period read the book. There were people who read the book after. And then there was also a person who was reading kind of as I I mean, and this was actually fairly late. I was trying to reorder the book. So I decided to kind of start it from the beginning and tell it in order. And as I would write each chapter, I would kind of, you know, I would send her basically a chapter a day. And if I didn't send her a chapter, she would really, she'd kind of be like, where is it? And what is happening next? I would like to know. And she would give me feedback every day on what I had given her. And if there were moments when it was inaccurate or felt wrong to her, and she was a terrific reader and she speaks Tamil, and that was hugely generous. And it also just made me feel a little bit like, I don't know, Charles Dickens sending my thing to the newspaper. You know, your editor's really expecting something, and you better get on it. And it better be interesting, because they're waiting. And so that, that, yeah, it was, it was really awesome of her. It was really awesome of her. And she just, she really kind of held me to a, held me to a great standard. And then there were people who read it later, and, you know, caught other things, or kind of gave me other senses of things that I might have missed, or might include, or places that I might have been off. Yeah. So yeah, it's it just feels so daunting to me to try to explain to international audiences. I mean, you have to convey time, place, like all of the cultural stuff like food and names and you know, all of the stuff that goes with setting a novel in a in a foreign country, along with all of the history lesson of what was going on along with the story. And so you could feel that it could get very, I don't know, either didactic or like, overwhelming to try and convey all that information. But I guess as long as you just center yourself in story, center yourself in Sashi's head, this is her daily experience. 
maybe some of that pressure of trying to relay history and politics and all of that, you know, just gets grounded in in who she is rather than trying to explain all of that to the reader. But I don't know if that's one of the things you were referencing at the beginning saying, I just didn't have the writerly chops, you know, 15 years ago to tell this story. And that's just a matter of revising and revising. But it feels, I don't know if you felt it overwhelming. It, it seems like from an outside perspective, it would it would be very overwhelming. Do you like the dentist? No. Like, are you okay with the dentist? I mean, no one likes no. the dentist. There are, of course, a ton of no, people it's a big who have fear. Right. So, like, my personal approach, and this arguably is not the healthiest thing to do, but if I'm going to the dentist, I actually don't have a huge problem with the dentist, but I'm also not, like, eagerly anticipating sitting in the chair. And so I just do not think about it until I'm in the chair. And I just do not allow myself to ruminate on it and what it might be like at all. And I do that by filling up my time with other things that have to get done. And so I think it was very rare that I was sitting around contemplating the entire scope of what I had to do. And in the moments that I did that, I totally froze. And in the moments where I was breaking things down to, I need to write about this event, or I need to write about this kind of thing that was occurring. You know, it's like that I want to say ancient saying, but I'm sure it's from like 20 years ago, like you eat a bear one bite at a time or something <laughs> like. Right. So I think as long as I wasn't thinking about all of the things you were saying, <laughs> I was fine. I was fine. I was not in the dentist chair yet. And then I think I had the gift of this voice that had given me like a certain level of controlled anger, which meant that she could address the audience and be like, you know, there's a line that says, you know, you, if you had seen these people, you would have thought this. And you, you American, you would have been wrong. And then later on in the book, it says, I should stop pretending that I know who you are, right? Mm -hmm. um, maybe you're not American or, or maybe you're, maybe you know exactly what this is like. And so it that gave me the opportunity to kind of have my cake and eat it too, because I got to say that. <laughs> I got right. to say, you, you American, you, you would be wrong. And then I also got to say, I am as a narrator, possibly a big screw up who doesn't actually know who I'm talking to. <laughs> and that was really helpful. And the other thing that, right, you did point out the first person, which I, like, I think I'm maybe trapped in writing in first person forever because it's just my favorite point of view. But I also I remember in grad school, I had a friend who, and it was like, you're, you're, you really like the retrospection, don't you? And I was like, <laughs> I do. Yes. This is what workshop is for, to have your psyche reflected back to you uncomfortably. Yes. <laughs> right. So so I think the other thing that makes possible, like the moments when she does zoom out and explain history are the moments when like the retrospection makes that possible. It also enables the voice can articulate the gap between the immediate and the larger scope. Like there's a part about the riots where it kind of says, you know, these were the things that happened to me. But I didn't know that these other things, like this was the meaning of this event. And at the time, I didn't know that because I didn't, I had no idea that this many people had been displaced or had died or kind of that this was what was going on. But now I know. And so I could, again, kind of have my cake and eat it too. Yeah, I think there's something at the, towards the very beginning of the book where there's something she wouldn't have access to, but she said, you know, this is either through my imagination or this is something that was conveyed to me by my brothers or, you know. So you do kind of get to get outside of her, either through her imagination of what was happening or things that were told to her. So it, it doesn't feel quite as restrictive from her being completely trapped in her head. And then, of course, she's able to 
move around and witness things that, you know, maybe other civilians wouldn't totally have access to, but you gave her access to through her position later in the novels. Yeah, I just find first person hard to work with. Why do you think that is? Just that restriction of, you know, I just I just want to float around and land in, in other places that not every person, not one single person could be. And uh, I get, I mean, as a writer, as a reader, I love first person because, you know, you get complete access to one psyche. As a writer, I feel claustrophobic. I just was thinking about the the part that you reference is, is there's a political rally where Sashi's brothers and her father go to a political rally without her. And yet you see what happens at that rally. And some yes. of it is that you see what they, you hear what they tell her later. And some of it is her imagining herself following them. Um, yes. And yes. I don't remember which of my many writing teachers said this, but at some point someone like kind of delivered a manifesto on the the beauty of the subjunctive and how much you could learn from a character about like just what they would have done. And I kind of like that idea of, or at least it seems very natural to the world that I'm writing about, regret as an animating principle, what I would have preferred to do. Right. <laughs> and, you know, and and um, that was very intelligible to me. And so the characters who get cut off from access, right? One of the challenges in writing about a woman in this context is that there were a lot of spaces, right, that women might not have gone, that they might not have been the first to go, or they might not have been alone, or they might not have had as much agency. Or um, And so I was always trying to find my way into the also the real life situations that had occurred where in fact the opposite was true. And so the research helped with that. And then also just kind of using that subjunctive to kind of be like, I can go to the rally if I want to. Right. Well, and writing about it from a distance because we understand the story is being told 30 years later. And so you get that, you know, she is obviously grown up. She's seen the kind of end of things. And so she can commentate on that from a position of time and, and distance that she couldn't if it was all set. I mean, I guess it is kind of all set when it's set. But, but you know, there's also an understanding that the story is kind of being told in a retrospective sort of way, which gives you a lot of interesting latitude about her perspective. We'll be right back with more from Sugi Ganeshanathan and Brotherless Knight in just a moment. You're listening to Writers on Writing. Another quick nudge to check out our Patreon page. If you're liking the show, if you've learned any tips that may have inched you closer to publication, if you like these behind-the-scenes discussions of how books get made, this is your chance to support the show. By becoming a backer for just a few bucks a month, you'll get weekly writing tips and prompts and some other goodies. Visit patreon.com slash writers on writing. Let's get back to it with Sugi Ganeshanathan and talking about Brotherless Night. So this, this question sometimes elicits dead air, but I was having a conversation with somebody about the distinction between setting and place and the the idea that you know place is a place but a setting is all the things that go into bringing that place to life like food and language and smells and all of those things and and this book is so wonderful at bringing to life a place i've never been to and i was wondering if you gave any thought to the the distinction if you think there is one between setting and place 
because I could really go down a rabbit hole with describing, especially a place like this, describing it to death. And this had such a nice light touch of keeping you grounded and centered in where we were and immersed in smells and foods and all of that, but we didn't divert off the path of what the narrative was. So I was wondering if there's anything you can say about creating a compelling setting. And if you did ever go down the rabbit hole of describing something too much or, you know, kind of how you reined yourself in. Sure. I like that question. Like the idea of a distinction between setting and place is interesting. I guess I should start by saying that I have for a very long time thought of myself as a writer who is pretty bad at setting. And I, when I talk with this, talk with my students about this, or just really with friends, even I pin this on the way that I am in the world as a person. I have a terrible sense of direction. I hate driving. I would happily look at a map at the front of Lord, the Lord of the Rings. I do not like looking at a map of the place that I actually am, and. As a kid in a car, I was never really looking out the window with a question about where we were going. I was just reading the book that was on my lap because luckily at that age, I was not carsick when I was reading in cars. And so I guess I never cared that much. I don't know. That's a little too flat. To, it's a little too flat to say I didn't care about where I was. I only cared about who I was with. But I think for a lot of my memories of place are made up of people and really, really specific settings, like one specific house or one specific garden or one specific shop. And so to kind of zoom in on those things was actually pretty easy because I remembered, you know, I would remember who had taken me there or something like that. And it's funny, my friend who read an early draft of the book was talking to me about it in the fall. And she said, this book is full of food. And I was like, is it? She was like, oh, yeah, your book's full of food. <laughs> and I a little bit had had no idea. And I went back and, and looked through it. And she was right. And I also have sometimes had a fondness for reading journalism about Sri Lanka and critiquing it. And so I've written a little bit of media criticism. And that is very occasionally included. I remember writing about a, a lousy restaurant review of a Sri Lankan restaurant. And I mean, first of all, the food that I put in the novel is to a hilarious degree, just food I like. It's food <laughs> I would eat, specifically me. <laughs> like, And so that was kind of funny to look back and realize basically I put my favorite snacks and meals in and I didn't actually explain them. Right. I wasn't, I didn't sort of say, this is a steamed rice and coconut dish that is uh, like a starch substitute or alternative to rice. Right. Um, and that is actually, that's putu, which is in many, many meals because I love it. And, you know, I didn't describe the preparation of like a fried preparation of fish, poriel, which is also in the book. And someone said to me a while ago, and I think this also kind of stuck in my head to a helpful degree that reading with the internet is different than reading without the internet. So <laughs> if yeah. someone really wants to know what poriel is, they can go Google it. Like the burden on them to find that out is pretty low. Yes. And so I think that's an advantage that I'm operating with that someone say, you know, 50 years ago was not. And so I don't have to put that in and think the reader has no way to learn this, right. depending on where they are. So that's just, I don't know, the luck of living when we live. It's nice yeah. to think there's anything lucky about living when we live at the moment. But right. Yeah. But I think like, um, I also, I, I appreciate what you said about not describing too much, because I do think there's also a way in which like an excess of description can itself, like in its volume, in its duration, be a kind of exoticism. 
Yes. Um, or Orientalism. And I wasn't interested in self-orientalizing. I was interested in resisting that. And, but at the same time, and there's a lot of great writing about this. So for um, anyone who might not have read these, like Amitava Kumar has written about this. I think it's Vikram Chandra, and they both had pieces in the Boston Review. Sonia Kamal, who wrote Unmarriageable, has also written about this. It's just kind of like, how do you write about your setting when your setting is the object of a certain kind of gaze, but also yeah. you love your setting, and it's yours, and you should get to write about it. And I think that, yeah, I mean, I did, I gave myself permission, to, apparently, to do things like put in my favorite food or put in the bit that I thought was funny or memorable and not to explain some of the other stuff because I didn't need the explanations. And then I think in that way, the setting is mostly made of places that I've actually been and people that I have remembered or who, t who took me to those places. So I, for me, I think setting is still often made of people and sense memory and not really a sense of, I did occasionally like pull up a Google map and be like, would you walk past this on the way to that? Right. Or, right. you know, someone would someone would say to me, your characters did this and they, they really can't. It was pretty yeah. rare. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like it uh, evolved sort of organically out of your your own body and memories and then was conveyed to the reader. I think you're right. I mean, I never really got lost. I mean, the other comment that I would make are the names in the book, because there are, you know, a good cast of characters. I would say I, d I didn't count them up, but I would say there's probably what do you think, like 15 to 20 kind of recurring major minor characters who we get to know, but they have different names for each other, familial names and shorthand names, and their names are long. So, you know, you had to kind of orient yourself and I never got lost, but it was another way where I felt very immersed without being told or too directed. You know, you assumed that I would know what the word for brother or mother is and you know, I didn't have to go to Google to look it up, but it, it, you know, it just felt very natural, both foreign and natural at the same time, if that makes any sense. I don't know if there's a lot of grappling. Maybe that's a lot of also beta readers to say, okay, I'm getting lost here. I don't know who this person is. Time for an explanation. Yeah. I mean, I remember, for example, the oldest brother has a, like a familial nickname, which is a common familial nickname for an older brother, which is Perionne. And that was one where I think I did explain um, because it's not that like it's not as common as just the word for older brother. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that one I that one I put in there. But I think I also as a reader, maybe again to an unusual degree, I don't mind not understanding what's going on for quite a few pages. Yeah, I will fumble around until I figure it out and then I'll go back and read that part again. And I don't mind. And so maybe to some degree I was expecting the same thing from the reader too. Cause I think, right. All of the words you're referring to, you can learn from context, which is how we learn words anyway. Like right. When we acquire language. <laughs> right. We're just, you right. know, we're sitting around guessing. And then, you know, two years later you discover that hors d'oeuvres is actually spelled that way. Weird. You know, like people who read a lot and don't hear the words aloud, you're like, Oh, I didn't, or I thought that this meant this meant that, or I, you know, and, and so sometimes you're wrong and that's okay. Uh, you can still get the gist of the story. And so I think I was trying to create a story also that when, if you weren't sure about something small like that, that you would still be carried along by your desire to just know what happens to Sashi and her family. Um, and it's funny also that you say that the names are long. I suppose that from a certain point of view, they are. And certainly like some of the last names are on the longer side. 
I think that all of those names are a little bit short. Oh, that's um, funny. We're used to like Brad, you know, <laughs> Steve right. and Brad. Right. It's like Jill and her brothers, Brad, Chad. And I think I did try to pick names that, you know, I kind of, I as a reader, I mean, you probably, have you ever written a story where you have two characters whose names start with the same letter? Oh, yes. And everybody says you should change one of them. Yeah. Right. And so I feel like there are different schools of thought on this. And if the characters are the same gender, by and large, I won't do that um, because I have a hard time tracking it. I don't know that everyone does, but I do. But here there are, you know, like Sashi and her brother Seelan both have names that start with S, but they end in different letters and they're different. They're characters of different genders. But I, you know, there are many, many Sri Lankan families where all of the kids' names start with the same letter. Mm, like, mm-hmm. um, or even the same first couple of syllables. Like, that's a thing. And I was not going to put that in here because I would have had a hard time, which is my limitation. But yeah, I think too, there's also, right, a lot of tracking tags in there. Things like there's a character who has film star eyes. And if you go back and look, like almost not every time, but if you if you see her after a long time, you always see her film star eyes. So they have like little... They walk around with their little um, post-its on them. Their post-its of description, like they're like he was the one with the um, he's the short one, or like he's the one with the the hooked nose, or he's the one with the really good hair, or or whatever it, whatever it is. And so the film star eyes is one more one of the more distinctive examples of that kind of tracking device. I think. Yes, is there things you can say about the book is somber. I mean, it's kind of one emotional tone and certainly not exclusively, but are there things you can say about writing violent scenes? Because it's very sad. Of course, the characters are grieving, but every scene feels different, but it's a kind of a turning around the same rock to look at the other side of it. I don't know if there are things you can say about writing horror, violence, war, that make this so effective because they're not, they're emotive, but they're not overly emotive. They're tricky scenes. I think they're tricky scenes for writers to write. And when you have to do it in a a number of different permutations. And I was wondering if you have tricks and tips you can say about writing some of those scenes and what you struggled with. Sure. Um, Thank you. I'm glad you think they're effective. I think that, I mean, I still sit around thinking about what is the right amount of violence for a book about war? Is it, Sometimes I'm kind of like, was it violent? Is it violent enough? And then I have friends who are like, don't worry, you're all set. And, you know, then I have other moments where I kind of wonder, you know, I I read the book, of course, in a row a number of times. I also was with some of this information for so long that I think just from a level of exposure, there was like a risk that I could become desensitized to it. And I think sometimes that probably happened. And so I would try to reverse course and kind of determine when that had happened and how and how could I make sure it that wasn't what was happening to me like how how could I read it as a reader and think about where would surprise occur when was surprise appropriate so that was a question that I think I was thinking about a lot then also what was the point of view of the violence um right because there are violent scenes for example I think I've already said there's suicide bombings in the book um, there is a suicide bombing, and this is Sashi's point of view. And one of the things that the narrative does is it makes Sashi's point of view on the suicide bombing very clear. That 
the point of view of the suicide bomber is not her point of view. And so you can kind of see, and she says, I am not dissimilar to the suicide bomber. And so it's sort of like two, two paths diverge in a, in a yellow wood or, or whatever. And so having that first person also meant that I always got to have judgment. She's mm-hmm. always judging the violence mm-hmm. around her and thinking about who it happened to and who did it and who's responsible and who's going to care for the people who are left in the wake of it. And that's her also her driving motivation as a character, right? Who's going to care for these people and can it be me? And that's a pretty big burden. But I think it also kind of gives all of the descriptions of violence a conscience because the descriptions of violence are in pursuit of a kind of care. Right. Yeah, I mean, it was remarkable to me how many ways you could come at that issue in this book and have it feel fresh and different each time. And uh, yeah, I think you're getting to the essence of of why that worked. And, you know, mothers losing their children, it always strikes me that there's no word in English. I don't know if there is in, in Sri Lankan about mothers who don't have, you know, we have the word for widow and we have the word for orphan, but we don't have a word for mothers who lose their children. Is there a word? Um, in Tamil, I don't actually know the answer to that question. That's a great question. I think that there's probably not, or I might know it. And there are a number of, like, there was the mother, the Mother's Front. There is a march um, in the book that came out of one version of the Mother's Front in Sri Lanka. And Mother's Fronts, um, these women's collectives, arose in, like, very different regions and ethnic communities of Sri Lanka. Like, they, there were Mother's Fronts in Sinhalese communities and in Tamil communities but I don't know of a word like the one that you're you're referring to. And that's a really that's a good question. I'll have to call someone later and and ask. Yeah, I'm wondering in other cultures that have dealt with this ad nauseum over time, if they do invent a language, because that's another way that, you know, as this mother, I, I don't want to give too much away, but as mothers are losing sons, you know, you can come at that scene. You had to come at it many, many, many times and you had to do it in a fresh and different way each time to I mean it's a particularly arousing emotion but coming at that several times is a skill and it was so remarkably done you know and so effective every time it happened so I guess now that I'm thinking about it I don't know that I even I mean again maybe I wouldn't have maybe I wouldn't have been able to do it if I thought about it this many times like how many times are you writing about mothers losing their sons and I did actually do it a lot and I can imagine like you know there's scenes of mourning. And your question about language is a good one. There is a scene in the book that kind of, or some language in the book that arose specifically from a conversation I had with a friend who reminded me that, right, like a lot of ritual, specifically Hindu ritual around death, presumes that the parent outlives the child. So there actually is not language or ritual for when or sorry, when the the ritual presumes that the child outlives the parent. And if the parent outlives the child, Right. Like when you have a funeral pyre, like the the person who lights it is generally the son. Right. Like it's the child. The child has outlived the parent. And so like there's something unnatural and anomalous and horrific about the parent outliving the child. And so there isn't ritual for that. And yes. so she kind of reminded me of that. She's like, remember, there's no all of these young people are dying and there's no language for it. And I was like, oh, God, that, that never occurred to me. And I think, yeah, she's she's really saying the same. Maybe it's based on what she had said to me, the answer to your question is no. That's right. There must not be a word. 
God, I can't believe we're out of time. I have so many more questions. Is there advice that you can give now that you have two novels under your belt and you teach and you're a journalist? I, we didn't even get into your journalism and how that, well, I guess we sort of tangentially did how that informed this book. But I wonder if there is advice that either you received or things you learned along the way in writing these two novels that you would you would pass along to uh, to fiction writers. Thank you for all of these really generous and careful questions and reading. It's an honor to be read this way. I think that, I think in the case of the second project, it took so long. And with every year, and I only sort of realized this the other day when I was talking to someone about it, that with every year, the number of people who think you will finish reduces. Nice. (laughs) In a horrendous way, right? Like, you know, people stop asking you about your novel. People are sort of like, I will tactfully not ask you or you know, they kind of have a look on their face that they're humoring you or, you know, you say it's coming along. And the question is like, who believes that? And you have to believe it. And I think it's also really beneficial to surround yourself with people who believe that you will finish. And I always think of my friend, Sam Chang, uh, is director of the Iowa Writers Workshop. And I went there and she wasn't my teacher, but she was a tremendous encouragement kind of throughout the period of time that I was working on this book. Because she just Every time I saw her, I 100% knew that Sam thought I was going to finish. And like a couple of times, she just made it very clear when she was saying, she just said it in such a matter of fact way. And I was like, Sam knows I will finish. Hmm. And that was amazing. Yeah. We also need the name of your editor who expected a chapter every day and we'll all send her chapters every day. And hopefully she. <laughs> but honestly, she having, having somebody like that, A, a, a very careful, close reader and B, sort of an accountability partner who, you know believes in you, believes in the project and and wants to know what happens next. What a gift that is. I think so. And I think I learned that it doesn't have to be another writer. A lot of my best readers, I mean, of course, a lot of my other wonderful readers are writers, but there were also just people who were hugely invested in this period of history and how it was depicted and who I trusted. And they were just so generous with their time. And so like I mentioned at the beginning of this, the audiobook is out a little bit later And also, even as I was reading from the book, I felt this, my accent is not Sashi's accent. And so I feel a little horrified every time I read from the book because she would sound older than me and slightly British. Mm. And the audiobook narrator is perfect, is perfect. So it's Nirmala Rajasingham, who also herself lived through this time period. And this is the only audiobook she's ever narrated. And I am so excited to hear it and so excited for people to listen to it. So she's an example of someone who was like really invested in how this time period is talked about. So I'm I was lucky to have a lot of people like that kind of alongside me. And if other writers are if I don't know, I always feel funny giving advice, but I've other if other folks are writing about time periods that have these if you have access to those people or if you can ask, if you can cold call people and ask them even, you you just get a lot of information you wouldn't have otherwise. I'm glad you said that about the audiobook reader because I usually do try to both read and listen to things now because you get such a different experience of it. And, and it sounds like that's especially true in this one, but you do get a totally different experience of the book listening to it versus reading it. And I, I kind of like to do both, which costs a lot of money. <laughs> you know? I, was, I, was, I have just started listening to audiobooks. And it's cool to hear that you do that because I know you can do the whisper sync thing where you go back and forth between your Kindle and the audiobook. And I don't I don't have the technical facility, I think, for that kind of for that kind of handoff. So either I'm all in on the audiobook or all in on the book. Yeah. Um, but the voice does matter so much. Totally. So 
Yeah, it's a much more kind of theatrical experience than than just reading it. But then I kind of get, you know, then I need to make notes and everything for the show. So I have to have the physical copy so that I can do that. But yeah, I mean, it's it's pleasurable both ways. So I'm I'm looking forward to hearing the the narrator of this because it sounds like that'll be a totally different experience. That'll be fun. Yes. So tell us how we follow you. I know you have a great website, um, which I think is just your name, which we'll we'll put in the show notes so everybody has the spelling of but are you doing a lot of online events where people can follow you you know see you see you virtually thanks for this question so my website is my name bb um, but you can also just go to brotherlessnight.com and i'm on instagram under my name um, and also via the podcast that i co-host and on somehow i'm still on twitter which hasn't completely collapsed yet <laughs> as um, the day is young I know, right? <laughs> Anything could happen. He right. could fire everyone. I'm on Twitter at VVG and I'm on Facebook. So, and I think just easily findable there via my last name. So, yeah. And I have a Mastodon account, but I haven't used it. Are you on Mastodon? <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not. I've heard of it, but I haven't, I haven't explored that. I'm so, so much of my life already goes to this that I can't do it Yeah. Anymore. I feel that. I also, um, yeah, I've been working, I have a motor disability, so I work with scribes and social media seems like one of the things to, th that doesn't absolutely need to get done. Yes, right. And your podcast is so fun. I do encourage people to check that out. The uh, fiction, nonfiction podcast with Whitney is really interesting. I love that. I love that whole idea that it exists out in the world as a tweet or journal story. It's been done in fiction and what a great, what a great idea. And those are those are really fun episodes to listen to. Thank you so much. And I have really enjoyed listening to your show as well and um, gotten a lot of useful advice. Oh, thank you. Phoebe Gunshayathan, thank you so much. Congratulations. And I can't wait for the next one. Thank you so much. That was Sugi Ganeshanathan. The book is Brotherless Night. It's out and available now and published by Random House. In addition to our Patreon page, you can always visit our websites. Barbara's is barbarademarcobarrett.com. Mine is mariestone.com. You can always subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, and Stitcher. You can visit our website for past episodes and more information about the show at writers-on-writing.com. That's writers-on-writing.com. That's all the time we have for today. Tune in next week, and thanks so much for joining me. Have a great day. <laughs>